Matthew chapter 8, Sermon on the Mount is over. We've spent a number of weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And just like when you've had a good meal, you know, turkey, turkey dinner, and you're hanging back on the couch trying to digest the whole thing, the crowd was kind of the same way with Jesus. Still digesting all that he had taught, the crowd was astonished by the authority with which we taught, that's with which he taught. That's what we read at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Their own scribes, when they saw the comparison of Jesus' teaching and the teaching of their religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, um, they saw authority in Jesus. What they saw in the, in the religious crowd was this, is that they, they heaped heavy burdens on people. They themselves, you know, were hypocrites. The crowd had had enough of the scribes. And so they ate up the teaching of Jesus. But there was this question as they're coming down the mountain here that they were really resting in their hearts. Who is this guy? Who is this man? Who is this man from Galilee? Now Matthew's gospel, of course, is, we've seen this throughout this series, it's a Jewish gospel. It's, it's written uh, to a Jewish audience. It's Matthew teaching about the kingdom of God, about the nature of the kingdom, about the nature of the king, Jesus. And so... In his writing, he wants to answer that question. Who's this man from Galilee? Okay, we've just had this great teaching. Now, who is this guy? And so Matthew compiles here for us in the next two chapters, no less than 10 miracles that he's going to tell us. And in fact, they're divided up. It's really nine miracles because the miracle that we're going to see in, in a couple weeks from now, Jairus' daughter being healed and the woman with the bloodletting issues is one miracle. But so what we have here is nine miracles in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And it works like this. Three miracles and then a story about how people reacted. Three miracles, then a story about how people reacted. Three miracles and then stories about how people reacted. And so what we're going to do over Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is look at them in that, in that order. And then this pattern. And so this morning we'll look at the first three miracles. And it's just natural that Matthew wants to demonstrate now the power of the king. We've had this great teaching, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached on the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount. And now, it needs to be followed by proof that the preacher is the king. That the preacher is the king of the kingdom. And so these first three miracles that Matthew shares were for people that you, in their culture, they look down upon. You've got a, a leper being healed, you've got a Gentile being healed, and, and you've got a woman being healed. And we know what the heart of the Pharisee was, you know, God, I thank you I'm not a Gentile, I thank you I'm not a woman, and I thank you I'm not a dog. That's what they prayed. And so it's, it's awesome as Matthew compiles these story, stories here for us that we see who the kingdom of God is for. It's, it's for everyone who needs a savior. The savior's available to all. He doesn't operate like the Pharisees. He's that, that system's over and done with. And so we read this in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Leprosy is a nasty disease. 
uh, amongst the Jewish people, they considered leprosy to be the stroke of the hand of God against you. I mean, the accounts of leprosy in the Old Testament, they illustrate that for us. You got Miriam, who rose up against the leadership of Moses. She was struck with leprosy. You get Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, who was plagued with the leprosy that Naaman had. You remember Naaman was healed and then Gehazi pulled this little scam to go and get some of Naaman's riches when Elisha said, I don't want anything. Uh, Gehazi used the work of God to line his own pockets and Elisha prophesied and he said, the leprosy of Naaman will be on, on you for the rest of your life. There's the story of Uzziah. The king who went into the house of God and into the presence of God. When the priests were trying to stop him and he was arrogant and he was prideful and he went into the presence of God and the scripture tells us that leprosy began to break out on his forehead and the priests grabbed him and they rushed him out of the presence of God uh, before he, he died. And he lived as a leper in isolation till the end of his life. So, so leprosy was seen as the stroke of the hand of God. It was an incurable disease. It ended in death. One who had leprosy was, was really held in the grip of death. They were alienated from their community. They were alienated from their family. They were alienated from really all people except for other lepers. Forced to live outside the community. Uh, they lived with no hope of drawing near to any place of worship before the altar of God or going to the house of God or worshiping with the people of God. In, in scripture, in the Old Testament, what we see is, is that, and, and even in the New Testament right throughout, that leprosy is a picture, it's a type, it's an illustration of sin. It symbolizes how sin devastates your life, how it destroys your life, how it brings death. If you were to turn back to the Old Testament, there's a really exciting chapter that you can read. Maybe you might want to go home and read Leviticus chapter 13 this afternoon. And it, it will explain, it explains how the priests were to diagnose leprosy, what they were to look for, what were the things on the skin that they were to watch for, and then, then they were to uh, put a person in isolation. And when you read Leviticus 13, what you see is that leprosy, though it appeared on the skin, was a disease that really was manifesting from the inside to the outside. And sin's the same. You know, sin originates... In here, the heart is wicked and deceitful, beyond cure unless Jesus touches it. We aren't sinners because we sin. It's the other way around. We sin because we are sinners. See, the issue of sin is, is deeper than skin level, like leprosy. And so leprosy just illustrates for us the ravaging effect of sin. And so if you, if you can, get the picture in your mind. Jesus on the mountain, mountainside, Mount of Beatitudes. Those who were in Israel uh, this year, you know what, what that looks like and how short the journey is from the Mount of Beatitudes to the town of Capernaum. Great crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountain. And so in your mind's eye, get that picture. The crowd walking with Jesus surrounded around him, him leader of the pack, walking and the throng with him. And as he heads towards uh, his community where he was living, a leper came walking towards the crowd. Now a leper was required that he was to warn people of his approaching because 
If others came into contact with him, they were made unclean. And so a leper would approach a crowd and he would say, unclean, unclean. And he would warn them. And the rule of thumb was 150 feet of distance. He had to stay away. And people would get out of his ways. And so I imagine as he approached Jesus and he approached the throng, that as he was crying out, unclean, unclean, the, the throng just began to part like the Red Sea around Jesus and around the leper. And he approached Jesus. The law barred him from coming to people, but it did not stop him from coming to Jesus. And Jesus, get this, did not flee. You got to picture it. There's probably chaos. People are running, man. Get away, get away. Taking off and Jesus does not flee. And the man says to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is the first time that Jesus has ever called Lord recorded in the scriptures. Lord, if you can, you can make me clean. Or sorry, if you will, you can make me clean. Leper didn't say, if you can. He said, if you will. He, he didn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doubted the willingness of Jesus to heal him. You know, actually in scripture, nowhere do you see Jesus ever denying someone who came to him to ask for help. He never denied anyone. And this man came to him and he asked for the impossible. He said, make, make me clean. And then Jesus did something amazing that no one else had ever done for this man since the time that he had been diagnosed with his leprosy. Jesus reached out and he touched him. I will be clean. And that's when the miracle happened because rather than making Jesus unclean, rather than Jesus being contaminated by this man's defilement, Jesus made him clean. Grace greater than leprosy. And as we sing that old hymn, grace greater than all our sin. See, this miracle is not just about leprosy. This is about the power of King Jesus to cleanse from the despair and the defilement of sin in your life, in my life. And you need to hear this about Jesus. He says, I will be clean. I, I, I think that's his word to you and I this morning. See, sometimes the guilt of our sin causes us to stay away from Jesus. The filth of our sin causes us to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I got to stay away. There were lots of lepers in Israel. Only one came to Jesus in this story. And I think we would, could be in the danger of making the same mistake as those lepers. I mean, there was many lepers, but only one said, I'll go to Jesus with my oozing sores. I'll go to Jesus with my defilement. I'll go to Jesus with my uncleanness. I'll go to Jesus in spite of my odor. I'll go to Jesus in spite of the fact, who knows, maybe he was missing digits, as leprosy does. And Jesus healed him. And in the same way that Jesus handled this man's leprosy, guess what? So he can handle your sin. He's not shocked. He's not horrified. He touched the leper and he'll touch you. And he certainly has the power to do so. More than likely for you and I, the question is the same. As, it's not that we doubt the power of Jesus. Often what we doubt is what? His willingness. Will you? Will you do this for me? 
And I like that question of the leper because he asked about the willingness and what he discovered is Jesus is willing. He's willing and when you come to him, you will always find that he is willing when you say, Jesus, I'm defiled by sin. I ask you to touch me. Heal me, forgive me, I repent, I turn from it. You'll always find his loving touch every single time you can bank on it. And as the story goes, we read immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Doesn't that seem like a strange instruction? Don't tell anybody. I, I, don't, I don't want you to tell anybody. Go to the priest and tell him what happened and, and do what the scripture commands and have him do what the scripture commands for you. See, Jesus wanted the power of this man's changed life to speak. There's a great chapter, uh, again, in Leviticus. You got to live. Leviticus 13 tells you how to diagnose leprosy, but Leviticus, four, Leviticus 14, tripping up my tongue, lays out the instructions, detailed, very detailed instructions. Yeah. For the appropriate actions of someone who has been cleansed of leprosy, what are they supposed to do if you've been healed from leprosy? There was a, a ritual, ritual that was to happen at the house of God. You were to take birds and hyssop and cedar and there was this whole process and the priest was to declare you clean and then he was to put you in isolation and then on the eighth day you were brought out of isolation. Then you were to take two lambs and you were to do this sacrifice and this and have a bath and a ceremonial washing and wash your clothes and then you would be cleansed. And so Jesus tells this man to go to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The significance is this. This is something that had never ever happened before in the history of the Jewish people. Miriam was healed of leprosy, but that was prior to the law being given. Naaman was healed of leprosy, but Naaman was a Gentile from Syria. Leviticus 14, with all of its details and all of its instructions, had never been acted upon in the history of Israel. No priest had ever done it. No priest had ever performed the rituals and the offerings for one who had been healed of leprosy because no one had ever been healed of leprosy. Leprosy was the stroke of the hand of God. You die. And that's why the scribes taught that, that to have leprosy was the, the, to be struck by God. But now, Jesus says, go to the priest and offer the things because one greater than Moses is here. Jesus of Nazareth whom the leper rightly identified as Lord. When you read the other gospel accounts, what you see is, is that the man didn't obey Jesus. He didn't go and do it. He, he missed out on the opportunity for all the testimony that could happen. He, he went off and he told everyone what Jesus had done. And it forced Jesus because of the crowds. He had to move outside of the cities and outside of the communities to do uh, ministry in rural places because of all of the crowds that came because of this man's testimony. Nobody had ever been healed of leprosy before. Uh, the, the funny thing is, is that we often do the opposite of the leper, right? Jesus said, leper, be quiet. Go and offer. Don't tell anyone. We're told, go, tell. And what do we do? We be quiet. The power of Jesus over leprosy and the power over, of Jesus over 
sins defile men. He's willing to cleanse you. The next miracle happened when they entered the town of Capernaum. Verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion was in command over a hundred soldiers, right? Makes sense, centurion. Which is one sixtieth of a Roman legion. Legion six thousand. He comes to Jesus. It's impressive. Man's got a position. In the Roman army. But the centurion is coming to Jesus. Who is the captain of the army of the Lord. You know he is the. The in charge of the armies of the Lord. He is the Lord of hosts. And this man understands authority. The centurion was a, a Gentile. In a certain sense he was an outcast. The other gospels tell us that he was. Um, loved. He loved the Jewish people. And that. From his own personal finances, he had, he had paid for the construction of the synagogue in Capernaum. But he was a Gentile, and especially in the mind of the religious. And he came to Jesus with this request. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was a shock to those with Jesus, but Jesus said, I'll, I'll go to your house. Oh, great. Now this guy, who is this man from Galilee? He touches lepers, and he goes to the house of Gentiles. What kind of teacher is this? Probably thought many of the people in the crowd. But then something that amazed Jesus happened. Only two times recorded in the scriptures does it say Jesus marveled. He marveled at unbelief in his hometown, Nazareth, and he couldn't heal many people, the scripture says. And he, except for a few diseases. And he marveled at the faith of the centurion. Now, to be a centurion, you had to be accomplished in battle. This man knew how to take orders. He knew how to give orders. He was used to obeying. He was used to being obeyed. He understood authority, and he understood how authority operates. And so he said to Jesus, you don't need to trouble yourself and come to my house. I know how authority works. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And, and the centurion acknowledged with humility, he said, I'm unworthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word, and I know it'll be done. Say the word, and I know that your power will manifest and will heal that life in my home. Again, I know how authority operates. 
I know that one word from the general and, and I move and we join the legion and we go to battle. At the word of a command, all the ranks fall into order with, with prompt and unquestioning obedience. And with the word, Jesus demonstrated his power as king. Power over distance. The first man he healed with a touch. This time he doesn't even need to be present. Not even present. Just speak the word. He says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And it says, right at that moment, the servant was healed. Just like when a centurion speaks, so when King Jesus speaks a word, one word is enough. One word from Jesus is enough. He spoke and it's done. So you have to understand that principle about King Jesus because it helps you. Really, it's one word is enough. If you grasp it, that about King Jesus, you will understand all theology and you'll understand all science. Did you know that? One word from Jesus is enough. King Jesus said, go, and the servant was healed. And for me, hanging over this entire account is the overtone of creation, man. Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. That's the creation account. God speaking is his way of working in creation. And we read in the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One word from Jesus and it's done. That is the sign of deity and it is stamped all over the life of Jesus. He is the son of God. He is God. With a word, diseases go. With a word, the storm and the wind and the waves cease and there is peace. As we'll look at next week. With the word, demons, gone. Go. Gone. He says, come out and Lazarus stumbles out of the darkness of a tomb into light, man. A dead man becomes alive. See, the centurion had a hundred soldiers at his command. But under King Jesus' command is all creatures of our God and King. All creation. All forces of nature. All the impetus of the universe is his soldiers. Are his soldiers. They move and they act at his word. And the soldier understood what you and I must understand. That everything is subordinate to the authority of King Jesus. To the authority of his word. And this man was a Gentile heathen. Uh, that, that's why Jesus marveled at his faith. His, his, his faith was intelligent. His faith was intelligent compared to the faith of so many people in, in Israel who stood in stark contrast. And Jesus just began to, to compare that. And he, he said, this is a warning to you. This man's faith in me is a warning to the nation of Israel, to all of us. You know, if we, if we persist in the refusal of the offer of the kingdom, Jesus says, then the offer will be transferred to those who will accept. You know, I think of Elisha who said, am I, am I God? Can I kill and make alive? Or Peter who said to the lame man, why, why do you look at me? Don't look at me in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. 
I think of Paul and Barnabas who rushed into the, out into the crowd, uh, tearing their clothes and, and crying out, why are you doing these things? Why are you treating us like this? We're men. We have the same nature as you. We bring you good news that you should turn from vain things to the living God. But Jesus doesn't refuse a man putting his faith in him. He doesn't say, no, I'm just a man. Don't do it to me. He accepted the faith of the centurion. It was an act of worship. It was an act of trust. Faith was the fruit that Jesus came looking for. And he marveled at what he found in the centurion because look at faith is the, the currency of the kingdom. There's just one condition for entrance into the kingdom of God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in King Jesus we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, not not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But everyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And if we're to do the will of God, the first requisite is faith. Faith. There can be an acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, but without faith, there is no obedience to that confession. And Jesus warned as he talked about the centurion. He said, I, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and they will recline. This struck me in verse 11. It's, you might want to look at it. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and will recline at table with Abraham. To me, it sounds funny. It sounds like it should say the table. They will recline at the table. It doesn't say that. It says they will recline at table with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the answer is faith. The key into entry into the kingdom is faith in Jesus Christ. And the centurion had an intelligent faith because he understood authority. The Lord is, you know, I would say this. The Lord has placed you and I, we're in an education system, the school of faith, being tutored by life. And we're being taught how it is to walk the life of faith, to live the life of faith, to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to set our eyes on things that are eternal. And so I would say this, when, when Jesus answers you or when Jesus disappoints you, he is seeking to educate your faith that you learn to trust him with everything that is within you. The leper said, if you will, you can heal me. He discovered that Jesus is willing. Look at all authority is in the hands of Jesus. So when we're when our faith becomes disappointed, there's a lesson in the midst of what Christ is trying to teach us. The centurion said, say the word and my servant is healed. In the education of faith, you will learn this, that you can never, ever, ever make the mistake of trusting Jesus too much. I've never heard anyone ever say to me or, or read anywhere, you know what my mistake was? I trusted Jesus too much. I don't think that's ever been written down in the history of the world. I trusted Jesus too much. Because you can't. He can. The question is his willingness. So we come to him always 
If he disappoints, it's an education in faith. If he answers, it's an education in faith. You know, I think with my kids, I, I did this a little bit. That I taught them to ride their bikes on the grass. Did anybody else do that? Or learn to ride your bike on the grass? Why? So that when the crash happened, the blow was softened. The goal is to get them out on the street. My daughter's got a bike gang formed, man. They, they're, they're terrorizing Lord Gibson's. Yeah, we have a good laugh about it. The goal is to get them off the grass onto the street, man. On the Sunshine Coast, the goal is to get to the gravity park, you know, where you can do some downhill and some high flying. And your faith in Jesus Christ will not fail you. You can put your trust in him. The warning of Jesus is this. The alternative is outer darkness. Where there's weeping. There's gnashing of teeth. And so we have to understand what Jesus is saying. The economy of his kingdom is faith. It's not money. It's not gold. It's, it's not silver. It's not religious works. It's not church attendance. It's not look how good I am. The economy of his kingdom is based on faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus is a secure investment. He came to rescue souls. That's what we're seeing here in, this, in these miracles. He came to rescue souls. And you cannot make the mistake of trusting him too much. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The third healing of this first group of three was, was Peter's mother-in-law. You could, I am just totally tempted to insert the mother-in-law joke here. But I won't do that because my wife has the most amazing mother-in-law. She's not here this morning. You have all the, I have a great mother-in-law too. I'll resist temptation. Okay, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many people who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Uh, the fact that it's kind of fun to point out that Peter was married. I mean, there's a section of the church that we know it says, well, you, he was the first pope and we need to take vows of celibacy. Peter was married, okay? Uh, sick, in bed in his, in his home was his mother-in-law with a fever and Jesus simply touched her and it says, the fever left and then what happened next is cool. She rose out of the bed and she began to serve. The other gospels tell us that it was the Sabbath. So likely Jesus and Peter and probably Andrew were coming from the synagogue. You know, she hadn't been able to participate in the worship. She was homesick, you know. Sunday afternoon meal, roast beef and Yorkshire puddings or whatever it was, wasn't on the table because she was down and out. But when Jesus touched her, she rose and she began to serve him. And it's a great picture because you can always tell a person whose life has been touched by Jesus because they will begin to minister. They will begin to serve Jesus. When the Lord touches your life, you, you can't help but say, who can I help? Lord, what do you want me to do? Who, sh who should I help? And the fruit of it all was sweet because Jesus touched her. She began to, to, 
to serve him. And what happened was, is that her home, the home of Peter became a blessing to others, to other people in need, to the demon possessed, to friends and neighbors and relatives sick and fighting to disease, fighting disease. They just all began to descend upon this little home and Jesus healed them all. We read with a word. And Matthew tells us this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and he bore our diseases. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. Isaiah 53, if you're familiar about it, is the chapter about the cross. It's about the atonement. It's, it's Isaiah prophesying in great detail what would happen to Jesus Christ on the cross. That that there would be atonement, that God would give a provision for the covering of sin through the death of Jesus Christ. And Matthew says that, that, this, uh, that this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' life. Listen to this. This, this helped me. It kind of reordered my theology a little bit this week. That, that Jesus uh, fulfilled this prophecy in his life and not on the cross. He said, this is fulfilled. Right here. This happened in Peter's house and this scripture, Isaiah 53 verse 4, is fulfilled. This is a verse about uh, physical healing. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, I told you that earlier, he never turned anyone away. He healed every single person that came to him with the heart of faith. In his earth, earthly ministry, the, the ability to heal anyone that came to him rested on the future work that was going to happen on the cross, that he would provide an atonement for sin through his sacrifice, through the shedding of his blood, through his death and burial and resurrection. And when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with the underlying factor that is at the root of all sickness and that is at the root of all suffering, sin. It's at the root of it all. And there is healing in the work of the cross. Because our sin is forgiven, through Jesus, we will be healed of sickness. We will be. Forgiveness of sin and healing of sickness are hand in hand. They go absolutely together through the work of the cross. But that does not mean that God is obligated, that Jesus is obligated right now in this moment to heal every sickness and every disease. He will. He'll heal it all. It'll all will be healed. It, but he's not obligated to do so today. So, some might be today. Some might be tomorrow. Some might be next year. Some might be further in the future. Some might be in eternity. He will heal all sickness and disease. He's not obligated right now, but he is obligated for this. He's obligated when we come to him with the heart of faith for the forgiveness of sin. For the forgiveness of sin. And whether that's, and so for physical sickness, whether that's now or in eternity, it's, it's for him to decide. You know, there are those who teach that believers shouldn't get sick. That if there's sickness, then it's rooted in the fact there's sin in their life, man. It's rooted in the fact that, that there's unconfessed sin. And I'm telling you, that is a false teaching. I, I remember 
before Lisa and I were married, I, I've told this story to you before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it. Her dad had cancer. They caught it way late. He was a healthy construction worker, and the doctor said, you're fine, you're fine. You got this going on. You're fine. Look at you. You're a strong man, you know. And Things have changed so much in the last 20 years. I'm thankful for that. And the cancer got a hold of his body, and there was... There was going to be no answer. And I took him to uh, a church service. We, we went and the two of us went up to have hands laid on him and for him to be anointed with oil. And we went up with such a hope that he would be healed of this sickness. And I, I watched the man pray and we were, we were in the context of a church that, that really, really believed in healing we really, really believe in healing, so don't, let, don't miss that in the midst of this. But I saw the gears begin to turn in this guy's mind as my, father, my future father-in-law was not healed. And, and I could see in my mind, I, I, I'm like, I know the route this is going. He's going, not healed. There's unconfessed sin here. And I didn't think that that was the case. I just thought, God's at work and he knows. And I'll tell you what, my father-in-law's healed today. He's in the presence of Jesus. He's healed. And the Lord spoke to him. You know, the Lord spoke to him in, in a dream actually and God said to him two different times, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And he went into eternity in the presence of Jesus and there's no cancer in his body anymore. And so as we consider this, I'm, I'm not... Saying Jesus doesn't heal. Guess what? Jesus heals. We ask him to heal every time, man. We pray for healing. Uh, I've personally experienced times where God has physically touched me and I've been healed. I'm sure many of you have. And what I'm trying to convey here is what Matthew is teaching is this. That the days of Jesus' time on earth and today are different. When Jesus was on earth and he was walking with people, he healed it all, man. It came into his presence. He healed it. And in our time on earth, we will be healed. We will have triumph over death. Victory over sickness will be ours. We will be healed today, tomorrow, next year, or in eternity. Because King Jesus has purchased the redemption of our bodies. Paul, Paul says in Romans 8 that we wait eagerly for it. We are longing for the day when that redemption will be ours. My back's sore today. I had to take Advil. You know, I don't want to be a whiner. But, you know, I put the stool here because I thought I might have to sit down. I'm waiting for the redemption of my body, as many of you are. And I'll tell you what, your faith in Jesus Christ will not drop to the ground. You will not say, my only mistake was I trusted Jesus too much. You will not say it. We will triumph, for, triumph over sickness. We will triumph over disease. We will triumph over death and it's all because of King Jesus and the work of the cross. And all will be healed in his name. That's a promise. That is the promise of the scripture. It's awesome. These three, these three healings. Well, this is where Matthew stops their miracle accounts and he begins to tell us about their effect on some of those present. Look at verse 18. I'm just going to go to verse 22 this morning. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side, over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 19. 
And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus was ready to escape the crowd. I, l- I always love that about Jesus in the Gospels. He wasn't about gathering a crowd together. He was about ministering to people. And when the crowd got to him, he was ready to get out of there. And so he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And it, it's then that these two men come to Jesus, two different men. One man is, I would say, too willing. He hasn't counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And the other man volunteers his service, but, you know, He's got another loyalty in his life. There's a rival to Jesus in his life. Now the fact that Jesus was going leaves these two men, affected both of these two men within the crowd in different ways. And they really represent for us opposite types of human character that that miss the mark, opposite types of human character that miss the mark in terms of what discipleship is, in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. Both were sincere. I, I have no doubt about that. You know, Jesus doesn't rebuke them, so you're not sincere. Both of them were sincere. But unfortunately, sincerity is not the test of genuine faith. We, saw, we talked about this last week. What's the test of genuine faith? It's obedience. And so Jesus is going to help these two men look into their hearts and see what's in there. Because he sees beyond the surface of the skin. He's looking deeper than they did. There's no plank in Jesus' eye. So he's going to help them pull the splinter out of their eye. The first man was a scribe. He's educated. You know, he was qualified to to teach in the synagogue. I was thinking about him and I was thinking, you know, once in a while I go and I order a specialty coffee more often than I should at five bucks. Starbucks, five bucks, because that's what it costs you at least every time you go there. And um, once in a while I get handed this not necessarily there. I get handed this cup and it's, it's full to the top. And the foam is frothing over the top. But it goes into my hand and all of a sudden I feel the weight of this thing and I realize that it's deceived me, man. That the substance is missing, like the important stuff, the coffee. And this cup is like three quarters of foam. And substance is missing and... I got false advertising. Now listen to the words of this man, the scribe. He says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't reject him, but Jesus wanted to reveal to him the cost, the cost involved with discipleship, the cost involved with following Jesus. Guy's got sincere emotion. He speaks brave words. But they, with those things, the, the emotion, sincere and, and brave words, mask the fact that this scribe had not weighed the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. Literally, Jesus did not have a place to lay his head. From his birth, borrowed stable, to his death, borrowed tomb, nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus is saying this, this is the condition of my life. When you enter in to follow me, this is what you're entering into. This is what you will participate in. 
I am a wanderer on this earth. And we who follow Jesus must recognize that the life of dis- discipleship is one that does not set its roots down deep into the system of this world. Our kingdom is not of this world. We, we live in a tent. We live for another kingdom, for another world, for another reality. The scripture says we're aliens. At least in the NIV. Someone ever asks you if you believe in aliens? I say yes every single time. You know, if you ever get into one of those conversations, just say yes. But it's not the mothership coming down. It's my father that's going to come and take me because I am one in your midst. I belong to another kingdom, to another world. I live in a tent and one day my father will come and he will take me to be with him where he is. That I might be with him also. You mean you have another home? Yes, a mansion. All joking aside, we're aliens. And in following Jesus, there is much blessing, there is much joy, there is much contentment, there is much peace, but there is much difficulty. There's a high cost to discipleship and the frothy confession of the scribe didn't have substance. And for you and I, we must count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus and enter into the life of faith and obedience. Jesus refers to himself here as the son of man. It was his favorite title for himself. It's how he referred to himself the most in the scriptures. The son of man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. It's a messianic title. It's a claim to kingship. I'm the son of man. The second dude who comes to Jesus. It says he was a disciple. I would assume that's in the loose sense of the word. And he said this. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here's the thing about this guy. He had a rival loyalty in his life. If you look at verse 21 and if you've got a pen in your hand, I'm going to get you to underline two words. Me first. Me first. Lord, let me first go bury my father. And when Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, he's not disrespecting the man's father. He's asking this man to have right priorities. It's not me first. It's King Jesus first. King Jesus first. And the thing was, was that this man's father was not even yet dead. Do we read that he's dead? We don't read. We don't read that. He says, let me go bury my father. We assume that he's dead when we read that. He wasn't dead. The man is saying this, let me wait till my father dies. Then when my father dies, you know, everything will be in order and then I'll come and follow you. You know, then I'll go. You know, he felt, this, this is a guy who felt obligated to his relationships. Relationships came first before Jesus. He said, no, just, you know, Wait. Wait. And besides, when my father dies, there's an inheritance coming. And no relationship can stand in the way of those, for those who are serious about following Jesus. Girlfriend, boyfriend, father, mother, child. Those things are not to stand in the way of following Jesus. And I think of these two things, they, they, they still stand in the way of us following Jesus. When I, when I look at these, 
that these, these two men really, Jesus doesn't slam these guys. They've, they've got faith that's mingled with fears. They've got faith that's mingled with weakness. And Jesus wanted to pull the splinter out and help them redefine their faith. And for you and I, it's the same. Often we, we don't count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. But I, but I want to be comfortable. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes we're, we're hindered by the potential of riches. The potential of income. Sometimes we're, we're hindered by relationships in our lives. And, and, and Jesus is saying this. You can't, you can't mix those things. Faith follows me. Faith lives as an, an alien in this world. Faith puts Jesus first. And so as I, as I think of this text and just put some application around the whole thing for all of us, the leper tells us this. Jesus is willing. He has the power and he's willing if you'll come to him. The centurion tells us that the economy of God's kingdom is faith. That God responds when we come with the heart of faith. The the story of Peter's mother and what happened in her house tells us that all who come to Jesus will be healed. And the story of these two men tell us that we have to we have to count the cost of discipleship and we have to repent and leave our idols, our rivals, rivals to Jesus behind. And so this morning, I, um, I wanted to do this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I, I wanted to just uh, 